Forget the church, follow Jesus was the April 9 cover story of Newsweek. Cover shows a young Jesus dressed in 21st century hip clothes standing on a busy city street. There's a recent trend actually dubbed hipster Christianity. How many are familiar with hipster Christianity? All right, two, uh, which doesn't advocate abandoning church per se, but rather doing church in radical new ways. A September 2010 article in Christianity Today titled Hipster Faith said, by the way, before I forget, there's a website you can go and take a quiz to see how much of a hipster you are in Christianity. Is it hipsterchristianity.com? Or, I think that's all it is, but uh, I took the test and I'm, I failed miserably. But anyway, uh, Christianity Today, in order to remain relevant, Many evangelical pastors and church leaders are following the lead of the hipster trendsetters, making sure their churches can check off all the important items on the hipster checklist, and then they have some of the more important items. Number one is to get the church involved in social justice and creation care. Uh, Show clips from R-rated Coen Brothers films, such as No Country for Old Men and Fargo during your services. Sponsor church outings to microbreweries. Put a worship pastor on stage decked in clothes from American Apparel. Be okay with cussing in the pulpit. Print bulletins only on recycled cardstock. And use Helvetica fonts as much as possible. Only a couple of those are actually tongue-in-cheek. I mean, those are serious things that a lot of churches are doing. The article also goes on to say... Welcome to the world of hipster Christianity. It's a world where things like the Left Behind series, Jesus Fish bumper stickers, and door-to-door evangelism are relevant only as a source of irony or nostalgia. And so it's the changing face of church. Now, whether our church is hip or not, that's yours to decide. I do use Helvetica font, however. So that's where I put in on this. And we refuse to use papyrus font. So those of you who are still using papyrus, and those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, you're, you're not even in this debate. So anyway, so what about this urging people to forget the church? How does that square with scripture? Well, not very well. For one thing, Jesus said he was going to build the church. I don't want to find myself abandoning the very thing Jesus said he came to build. Then there's the direct exhortation in the book of Hebrews to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The Christian life is a corporate life. By that, I mean it's a life in congregation with God's people. Yes, there is what is called the universal church, meaning that ultimately we are all part of the sum total of Christians from Pentecost to the rapture. But even a quick survey of the New Testament shows that there are always local churches, actual congregations, not just mystical connections. And so more and more we run into people who say, well, I'm a, I'm a part of the church, the greater church. Well, that's true. We all have a mystical connection to one another uh, you know, as Christians, but the Bible, the New Testament spoke of local congregations, not just everyone being a part of the church. The believer who is truly presenting his or her physical body to the Lord, which is what we learned in verses 1 and 2, must find himself or herself involved with the members of Jesus Christ's spiritual body of believers on earth. Your living sacrifice is lived out among God's people. And so that corporate life is the subject that we take up now beginning in verse 3. 
Uh, In verses three through five, Paul says, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul introduced a powerful analogy. Most of you are uh, familiar with it. The church is like or likened to a human body. The human body with its various members is a marvel of harmony, unity, balance, and cooperation. Each has its uniquely designed functions and each carries out only its functions. The lungs never try to digest food. The stomach doesn't decide to pump blood. The heart refuses to breathe. All are dependent and interdependent upon each other for there to be health and growth and maturity in the entire body. Individual believers are to regard one another as they do the individual members of their own physical body. It isn't always like that among the members of Jesus Christ's spiritual body. Paul exhorts every Christian to not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Uh, Over the last decade or so, and even continuing today, you hear a lot about self-esteem, about low self-esteem, and about people esteeming themselves. Paul indicated that self-esteem was a problem, but it was high self-esteem that is the problem. People tend to esteem themselves too highly and therefore create problems with the harmony and the unity and the balance and the cooperation of the Lord's body. And so uh, it, it's not really a, a lack of esteem. It's, it's, you know, people get into dialogue and conflict with one another because they're esteeming themselves too high. Uh, everybody wants to be a servant. No one wants to be treated like a servant. The minute we're treated like a servant, you see how highly you esteem yourself. And uh, it, it creates difficulties. And um, this would be a great place to just start counseling people, no matter what their problem is. Just say, are you esteeming yourself more highly than you ought to? Of course you are. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be here. So, you know, that kind of a thing. And so we all tend to do this. You know, we, we have our own impressions of who we are and how valuable we are and how loving we are and how kind we come across and, and uh, you know, those kinds of things. And so just, Paul says, you know, we're a body. We're all working together. Find your place in the body, your niche, your purpose, your function. Uh, and, and it's going to be to come alongside and minister to others, not esteeming yourself the most important part. Rather than think, uh, esteem ourselves too highly, we should think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. God himself sovereignly measures out your placement and empowering in his body. The boundaries of your service and ministry are proscribed by God. You, in faith, are called upon to believe that your placement and empowering are perfectly suited both for you and for the other members of the Lord's body. This is really hard uh, because we, again, we tend to think you know, that we should be somewhere else. Uh, I had never heard of Hanford before when God brought me to Hanford. I had heard of Anaheim uh, and Disneyland and, you know, things like that. And I'd heard of other places that, are, that have a more moderate climate uh, and, and, you know, those kinds of things. But, you know, God prescribed that I would come to Hanford and he's prescribed many things in your life. Uh, and, and that is, we need to have the faith that God is in sovereign providential control of our lives and can lead and guide us. And, and um, 
it's not always going to be the place and the position that we thought it was going to be or that we think we deserve, quite honestly. You know, there are times when we think, well, hey, I, I could do that. I should be doing that. I've been here longer or, you know, I'm, I'm a lot more handsome or I'm smarter or whatever it is you are, think you are, balder, you know, whatever. Uh, it, it, it just, it, that's, God doesn't care about any of those things. He's working in you to make you more like Jesus Christ and, and we need to have the faith to believe him. Paul now begins to discuss how you actually live out your sacrifice among the members of the Lord's body. He discusses your differing gifts and he discusses your common graces. First in verse six, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Now gifts, as you know, they are God's supernatural empowerings given to you to use as tools to build other believers up with. Warren Wiersbe likes to say that the gifts are tools to build with, not toys to play with. And so uh, God wants to... uh, use you, minister through you in order to encourage and edify and build up other believers. You find lists of gifts in Romans 12 here where we are in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. While those lists are helpful, be careful not to limit God. God endows his beloved children with many combinations and degrees of giftedness. I've seen lists with as many as 21 spiritual gifts The exact number is not as important as the faithful exercise to build others up in their walk with the Lord. Uh, I, I vacillate sometimes between telling people they need to find their gift, which is true and biblical. Paul told Timothy to stir up the gift that was in him, and certainly God gives us gifts. And people just, and just telling people, why don't you just minister to others? Why don't you just look at other people and love them and do what God tells you to do, and, and uh, you'll discover your giftedness uh, in that way. And so uh, it is important to, to kind of seek the Lord for gifts and to know what your gifts are, but at the same time, um, you just want to minister to people. And, and sometimes gifts can get in the way. I mean, you have a need right in front of you and you think, well, I can't, I can't meet that need because I don't have that gift. Uh, well, are you a Christian? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Uh, is there someone else with that gift standing next to you? So, you know, maybe God is going to use you uh, in some way. And so we don't want to get so into the gifts that we limit ministry uh, but uh, at the same time, God says, you know, I've gifted you through the Holy Spirit. Here's some idea of what those gifts are, how they might operate, and so uh, discover them. Uh, overall, we simply want everything we do to be led by and empowered by God the Holy Spirit uh, in our ministry one to another. Now, uh, here Paul lists gifts that express the Word of God and some gifts that expand the work of God. So he's just going to give a quick list of gifts here without really uh, uh, defining them. Uh, His audience knew about these gifts, apparently, and so he didn't feel like he had to define them. So the gifts that express the word of God, he'll mention, are prophecy, ministry, teaching, and exhortation. In verse 6, if prophecy, let us prophesy proportion to our faith, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering, he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation. Prophecy is a gift that causes no small measure of controversy when you discuss it. Uh, it seems to me <laughs> that there were in the early church both those who held the office of a prophet and those who exercised the gift of prophecy. Prophets, along with the apostles, laid the once-for-all foundation of the church by speaking forth the inspired 
word of God. Their office has ceased now that we have the completed scriptures. No more prophets in this uh, strictly New Testament sense and no more apostles. Uh, Those guys, clearly their scriptures, especially in Ephesians, that speak of them laying the initial foundation of the church. Doesn't mean prophecy has ceased, however. Uh, And Paul himself discussed and described at length the gift of prophecy, indicating in 1 Corinthians 14 that it would be a continuing ministry of the Holy Spirit throughout the church age in which we live. Its purpose is not to lay a foundation or to tell us anything new, but it's to build up believers upon the foundation already laid down in the Bible. And that's why when you read 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says somebody is going to speak forth the word of God and say it's a prophecy, let the others judge. And the judgment is according to the measuring stick of God's word. Does it have the character of God speaking to, uh, to me, and does it have content that lines up with Scripture? Uh, if those things uh, add up, then we don't have any problem with somebody saying they have a word of prophecy. Uh, prophecy can be exercised in many forms. Uh, perhaps this is what Paul means when he says, according to our faith, or in, according to how we in faith exercise the gift. People have waking visions, uh, as well as certain dreams that can be considered prophetic. Um, we've had people over the years share many different visions that the Lord has given them. And they don't go into a trance. It's not something weird. They're just usually while they're worshiping the Lord uh, or maybe at a meeting like this at our gift shop, God will put an impression on their heart. They'll see something and um, uh, speak it forth, and we would consider that an exercise of the gift of prophecy. Uh, people have gotten dreams before that, uh, you know, there's, there's next day pizza dreams, you know, uh, because your stomach is upset, and then there are some spiritual dreams. Uh, there are people who just feel like God is giving them uh, words to speak, not in a kind of an automatic kind, but they just start speaking forth what they believe uh, is, uh, you know, on their heart. Uh, one of the most, I think, notable uses of the gift of prophecy is something we do here a lot, but it, it's not very spectacular, and so people kind of uh, overlook it, but it's when we each share different scriptures that the Lord has put on our heart. You saw tonight, 66 books of the Bible written over 1,600 years by over 40 different authors. Uh, why would God give me Psalm 1610 right now to share with this group? Well, because somebody needs to hear that tonight, and so it, it becomes a word of prophecy. Pastors will tell you that a lot of times, uh, well, almost should be every time that you teach the word of God. You're speaking forth the word of God uh, with the gift of teaching and as God leads you in certain directions, gives you certain ideas, it's a word of prophecy for that uh, congregation at that time. And so uh, prophecy, we don't have any problem with it. Um, often the gift of prophecy involves God directing you at a particular time to a particular passage, and that's my favorite exercise of the gift. Paul next lists ministry as a gift. Ministry is simply service to the body of all kinds. The gift is manifested in all sorts of practical help that you give to other members of the Lord's body. And while I don't want to limit its application to, uh, in any way, ministry in this context seems to be service to the body that might allow prophecy and teaching and exhortation to occur. Anything and everything that helps the word of God to be expounded is seen as the supernatural gift of ministry. So here at Calvary, we're a good example of that. 
you know, we do like to put a high value on the teaching of the word of God in our gatherings. Everything else that goes on is in a sense subordinate to the word being taught and heard. It's super important. Everything else everybody does is super important, but it's a support ministry, so what can happen? So that the word of God can be read and expounded and so people's lives can be changed. And so these different ministries raise up around that ministry uh, and, and, of course, churches, even different Calvaries, they have different levels of how you know, strict they are about that and what kind of distractions they allow and you know, those kinds of things. And, and there's no perfect church. Um, you know, we, we take a lot of criticism on Sunday mornings because we try and keep younger children out of the main sanctuary. Uh, you know, uh, I, I see, I feel bad for the ushers just like you do and people get up in the front row and, you know, 30 minutes into the Bible study and walk all the way back. Here, I'll do, I'll do a little thing for you. And they walk back and then everybody's just, I see your heads, your heads are going like this. Then about five minutes later, that person comes back and you think, I wonder what's going to happen. And they clomp down to their seat again and they're wearing jewelry and, you know, and everybody's head is going like this now and stuff. So, you know, I mean, you know, in some, I, I, I remember, um, um, you know, I, I was in a church service one time and the pastor, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I can say this. He, uh, he got super distracted uh, because this lady uh, left the church service and then came back in, even though it was in the back, and he just totally lost his place, and he, he called out one of the ushers by name, and I'll just use Jim's name as an example. He said, Jim, we can't have pregnant women leaving the service and coming back in. And then he got back into teaching, and it was just, it was just priceless. But uh, so, you know, I don't think, I think we do okay uh, with stuff like that. But, but really, I mean, we're kind of, a li- we are a little bit, we're a little bit serious about the teaching of the word, and it's not because I like to hear myself talk. I, I don't even listen to myself. Uh, it's not because I think I'm the most important or whoever's in the pulpit is the most important. The word of God. God said, I honor my word above my name, and it's, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes lives. And yes, a lot of other things are important, but they are subordinate to that. And so that's the gift of ministry. Teaching the Bible requires a supernatural gift. It involves a God-given ability to give systematic and regular instruction in God's word. Many believers are able to teach, and that's great, but the gift of teaching involves more than imparting information. It's a situation where God says, I've gifted that person to teach so that when the teaching goes on, my Holy Spirit ministers in a unique way from heart to heart. There's a spiritual transaction, not because the person is intelligent, not necessarily because of their study, though they should study as an approved workman, but because there is a giftedness to it. Uh, and so if you're able to teach and give in from, that's fantastic. There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, there needs to be a giftedness to teaching as well so that people's lives can be changed. Exhortation, another broad gift. It involves advising, pleading, encouraging, warning, strengthening, and comforting. If teaching systematizes and explains God's truth, exhortation calls believers to obey and follow it. Now, the gifts that expand the work of God are giving and leadership and showing mercy. Uh, He who gives, verse 8, with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who sows mercy 
uh, shows mercy, excuse me, with cheerfulness. Giving expands the work of God as the funds received are used in various ways for the forward outreach of the gospel, both locally and abroad. Now, we have adopted a philosophy over the years of not talking very much about giving, just giving opportunity for giving. We receive the offering, uh, and I just personally, I feel like that's the best way to go. Occasionally, we'll tell you about a big financial decision uh, or, or, you know, what something, you know, what, you buy the land or you buy some building or something like that. Uh, but generally speaking, our philosophy is if you're teaching the Word of God, you're encountering verses about giving, uh, if, if, you, if you and your relationship with God on a personal level aren't prompted to be generous by the Holy Spirit, then I don't want to be the one that shames you and guilts you into doing that, yeah, it, it just quite honestly. And uh, we could raise a lot more money. Uh, churches do it all the time. God bless them, I guess, uh, you know, by, by using worldly techniques or appeals or different things. But, um, you know, that's between you and the Lord. And, and so if you, if you don't want to give, uh, that's sad. Uh, you should. And we talk about that in the relevant passages like 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, uh, but uh, it, it is to expand the work of the ministry of the gospel. Leadership is needed to guide the local church into the will of God so that the work of God can be expanded. Leadership also, a supernatural calling, not a natural ability. Uh, you understand all of these things we're talking about, they're not natural abilities uh, and if you have a natural ability in this area, you have to fight against it a, a little bit because God wants to do something supernatural through you. Um, showing mercy in this context, going to others in the body who are in some distress to show them God's love and concern. You see this especially in those who are called upon to do visitation among the sick and afflicted members of the Lord's body. Cheerfulness can be translated hilarity. It is hilarity in the sense of Proverbs 17, 22, which says a merry heart does good like medicine. Uh, I think we should have lots of fun as Christians in a godly way. We should laugh a lot, encourage each other uh, it, it, with a hilarious spirit uh, because it's a good medicine. Now, Paul next looks at our common graces in verses 9 through 13. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. In the New Testament time, uh, the hypocrite was an actor. He was behind a mask, someone who played a part on the stage. We are not play acting in our relationships to one another. We must love enough to honestly minister to one another, hating and rebuking what is definitely evil while clinging to and encouraging the good we see. Uh, and so that's what that verse is about. I'm, I, I need to love you where you're at, but God doesn't want to leave you and I where we're at. And so there's an encouragement to avoid what is evil and to cling to what is good. Uh, peer pressure is a good thing if it's the right peer pressure based on biblical principles. And one of the things being in a congregation of God's people does is it gives you positive peer pressure. Now, I'm not saying the church can't be weird or judgmental or that individuals can't cross lines. We're all people, we, we do that all the time. But there's a, there's a pressure uh, exerted when other Christians know you, when you wanna go off the rails and do your own thing, 
and move into areas that are not godly, it, it's kind of difficult. You're found out, and then other people, they want to talk to you about that, and at least it provides the opportunity for repentance and faith and those kinds of things. So uh, that's important that we be without hypocrisy, not in the sense of hiding our sin, but in dealing with others who we see, uh, telling them, hey, get away from what is evil and cling to what is good. Verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. In all of our contacts with one another, we're to exhibit grace, we're to love, and even beyond that, we are to prefer one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. This verse describes an on-fire desire to serve the Lord's body. Um, This uh, Saturday, uh, Gino and myself and Jacob were going down to Lancaster, Calvary Chapel of Lancaster. My friend Mike Morris is down there and he's asked us to come down and encourage their kind of their servants group that they have. And in my notes, one of the, I'm going to be teaching on John chapter four where Jesus and the woman at the well and he was tired um, and, and you know weary. And one of the things I'm going to tell them is if you're not physically tired serving the Lord, then you're not serving the Lord enough. And that's kind of contrary goes a little bit counter to what some people would say. You know, it's like, hey, you know, you're getting tired. You need to tag out or something like that. You know, Jesus was tired. He was weary at that well. He'd spend all night in prayer sometimes and then all day in ministry. And even his disciples were worried about him. They thought he was, you know, doing too much. And, uh, but he knew his mission and he knew his father's heart. And so, uh, you know, uh, I'm, uh, I don't have any, I can, be honest, I can be honest with you, right? Because we're friends, we've been together for a long time. I don't have any sympathy for people who are just tired. I like people who are tired. Get tired. You know, if you're all, hey, I haven't done anything in weeks. <laughs> ready to go, I'm fresh and ready to go. Tire yourself out serving the Lord. You've got, uh, what, what's the old saying? You, you can uh, rest when you're dead. I like that. I, <laughs> that's going to be our new slow. That's our new ministry, rest when you're dead. It doesn't make sense theologically, but I think you get the idea. And so uh, let's be tired serving the Lord, not lagging in our diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Uh, verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Praise, patience, and prayer mark your journey and especially your trials when you're presenting your body to the Lord as a living sacrifice and when you live out that sacrifice in the church. And then this little section ends with verse 13 where it says, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. The attitude here is one of being concerned for the welfare of others in the Lord's body especially and actively pursuing avenues of benevolence and showing them hospitality. Uh, and it's Im- implicit in this is a, uh, a loose hold upon the resources that God has given you and a desire to take those resources, our, each of us individually and then all of us corporately and think where can we best use these resources to most influence others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, and so I bring my treasure into the, into the Lord's congregation. We pool all of that together, and then God directs us uh, as to how to use that to minister one to another and to others. Uh, and just in closing, obviously, you know, the, the, a very obvious conclusion, it is through you that the Lord is present ministering among the members of his body. It is, it is through you uh, that he reveals himself to other Christians. Uh, it's not a guilt trip to say you have to be at every meeting of the church or anything like that. Um, there's always, there's always going to be a tension at different points in our lives, and we're pretty mellow about that, about, you know, how much church is, you know, we don't have the churchometer, you know, in terms of, you know, they're going to put black boxes in your car pretty soon if they haven't already to figure out your driving habits and stuff. We could, we're not going to have a churchometer, you know, and stuff, and then tap into that with a USB, wow, you <laughs> You're pretty lame on your church attendance, you know. I mean, we're not doing because you know people do get busy. But you know, if you're a sincere Christian, and you you are, if you're here on a Wednesday night, uh, then uh, you know you, you, there's a tendency sometimes to oh, I'm tired and and uh, I can't say I'm tired anymore because Pastor Gene doesn't care that I'm tired, you know. And so this is why I have such a bad reputation, I guess. You know, this will so go out. Somebody will put that on Facebook, and then a year from now, people say that guy's a jerk, you know. He, doesn't care if you're tired. I went there tired one time and he laughed at me. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, so yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about now. But anyway, so, but when you're not at church, if, if, if you and I aren't at church, uh, then, you know, the Lord loses an opportunity to, to minister through you to someone else. That's all. That's all. You can't be at church all the time. There's other places to minister because wherever you are, you're a minister. But, you know, there is a trend today uh, towards uh, belittling the church uh, towards different, you know, hip ways of doing church. There are churches even in our area that frequently cancel Sunday mornings. They say, hey, just forget Sunday morning, just stay home and have a barbecue because we're hipster Christians and we don't really need to come to church. You know what? I need to come to church. I don't know about you. I, who, whoever, who came up if you don't need to go to that church, then they shouldn't be a church. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying, we don't put a trip on anybody. We don't say, hey, we missed you. You know, you, you were here 10 minutes late. We missed you at church. I mean, we're, we're really mellow. But if you get up on a Sunday morning and say, we don't need to meet, well, maybe you don't need to go there because what, what needs are they meeting? If, you know, is there no one that needs to come to church on Sunday morning to receive the Lord, to hear the word of God, to minister? I mean, it drives me crazy, that guy. So, oh, man, that is so hip. We have a hip church. Every now and then we just cancel church. Wow, that's cool because you don't need to go to church, I guess. You're so hip, you don't even need to go to church. And all the while, Jesus says, I'm going to build what? My church. And he's not standing on a busy street corner in hip clothes. He's hanging on the cross and rising from the dead and coming again soon. Amen? Amen. So.